So last week, a short video caught the attention of our team here at ESPN Daily. It was posted to TikTok, and it was a bit of a scouting report on Portland Trailblazers rookie guard, Scoot Henderson. Now, in the interest of being fair to the user who posted it, I'm not going to name them or play the clip. But in short, the video was not a friendly analysis of Scoot. Let me just read a few quotes. He's super indecisive with the ball. Like, he's just so unsure if he even wants it. Scoot does not use peripheral vision at all. He's always looking around, kind of manic. But the line that piqued my interest the most was this one. Quote, Scooter Henderson is a bust, bro. Unquote. And to put that quote in context, this video was posted in reaction to Portland's 17th game of the season. And it was only the eighth game Scoot had played it. He had missed a couple of weeks last month with an ankle injury. So it was on that small a sample size, eight games out of the hundreds Scoot is expected to play in his NBA career, that the label of bust was already being conferred onto him. And sure, Scoot was the number three overall pick in last summer's draft. He's expected to develop into the player Portland can build their franchise around. He is going to be scrutinized. But when it comes to the dreaded B word, this one TikTok user was not alone. In a matter of seconds, you could easily find a handful of other videos on social media labeling Scoot as such. So the next logical question for me, what exactly is going on here? Today, with help from the exceptionally insightful Brian Windhorst, we explore exactly that. It's a look at the word bust in basketball. How we define it, when we should and should not use it. And how the fixation on this moniker fails to appreciate the complexities of building a franchise player. I'm Israel Gutierrez. It's Tuesday, December 5th. This is ESPN Daily. For the ones who get it done, Granger offers high-quality supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as access to product specialists who have the knowledge and experience to answer your toughest questions. Plus, their commitment to being your safety partner can help you keep your facilities safe and your people safer. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Brian Windhorst, you spent some time with Victor Wenbenyama in the offseason. You obviously have covered the NBA for ESPN for a long time now. Wanted to get your thoughts on this year's rookie class so far early in the NBA season. I guess it depends, Izzy, on whether you um, consider Chet Holmgren a rookie. Right. Um, but if you do, uh, it's one of the most exciting couple of you know star players potential that we've had in the league in my mind in a really long time, because not only am I excited about the potential of these two players as stars, but I'm really excited about their potential as rivals. And so that's going. And then there's a couple of other guys who have been, you know, reasonably impressive with, you know, looks like they could be, you know, have pretty good looking futures. Yeah, me personally, I'm invested in the Thompson twins because I took some time to write about them. 
last year, but there's also the name of a certain player who was drafted number three. That's Scoot Henderson. He coming into the draft was, I don't know, for me, sort of considered the Dwight Howard of guards. He was built like out of a rock. He was absolutely explosive, athletic, and something that people considered could be a franchise guard. Wanted to get your thoughts on Scoot Henderson so far. Yeah, so the decision that was sitting there in front of the Charlotte Hornets at number two Mm -hmm. was potentially a franchise-altering decision for a couple of different teams. The Blazers themselves getting the number three pick in in the draft was a factor in why Dame Lillard was traded. Hmm. They elected not to trade that pick, which is something that they were thinking about doing before they got lucky in the lottery. They elected not to be aggressive with upgrading their roster in uh, free agency and basically to build around this incredible fortune that they got, which was A, they jumped up in the lottery, and B, had Scoot Henderson quote-unquote fall to them at number three. It, you know, was a serious contributing factor in basically driving away the most popular and most successful player in Trailblazers history. Hmm. So Scoot Henderson sits at the crossroads of a lot of different potential pasts and futures and is obviously a very important player in how several franchises, now even including the Milwaukee Bucks, who, you know, I guess you could say benefited from his arrival in Portland, um, will go in the future. Yeah, that's interesting because there's so many levels there of potential added pressure for Scoot Henderson, who I mentioned was drafted number three overall. And it gets me to the conversation that I wanted to have about Scoot and about high NBA draft picks overall, because there was a post by a TikTok user basically pointing out some of the, let's call them shortcomings in Scoot Henderson's game so far. And I want to be careful with this word because it has a lot of power, particularly in NBA circles, but wondering if Scoot Henderson might be a bust already at this point in his career. Now, granted, that already sounds like a ridiculous assessment at this point of his career, but Brian, how much do high draft picks want to avoid that label? Obviously, considering everything that goes into becoming a high lottery pick Mm -hmm. and the expectations that come with it and, you know, the possibilities that come with it, when it doesn't work out, it changes the trajectory of many lives and franchises. It costs people jobs. It costs people millions, tens of millions. To say that the stakes are high for a high draft pick is kind of an understatement. But here's the thing about this, Izzy. The industrial complex that surrounds the NBA draft, Hmm. it's decades old. It's, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars deep when you consider the development process, the evaluation process, the scouting process, what happens around colleges, everything that goes into player development and player evaluation. There's computer models. There's, you know brain analysts, (laughs) the things the teams have done over the decades to try to figure out the draft and the amount of resources, time and effort and competition that they go into to make these draft picks. And despite all of that, 
It's a crazy inaccurate science. Mm -hmm. Even the people and the teams that are the best at it screw it up all of the time. And I think, you know, Sam Hinkie, who was the general manager famously of the Philadelphia 76ers, certainly a man of analytics and science, had a remarkable viewpoint on this. He basically admitted that no matter how much resources and effort that you put into drafting, that probably a, a significant percentage of your picks, even the picks at the top of the draft, were going to be busts, were not going to work out. Hmm. And so he believed that if you were rebuilding a team for sustainable success, you didn't need one high draft pick. You didn't need two high draft picks. You needed three, four, five, six very high draft picks because you were going to fail on a number of them. Not because you screwed up, not because the players screwed up, because that's the nature of the NBA draft and player evaluation. Yes, the Hall of Fame is scattered with guys who were taken in the top three of the draft. And you look at the, the, the team's that are routinely in there, you often see championship winners and finals MVP guys who were taken with those first few picks. Mm -hmm. But there's a whole lot of them that ended up in, you know, a talent graveyard. And that is the nature of draft and the nature of the boom and bust aspect of it. Okay, so we've established it's difficult to not draft a bust early on <laughs> in the NBA draft, but let's sort of define, Brian, what a bust is. Start with sort of where they're picked. Does it have to be top three, top five, top 10, lottery even? So I think generally in the NBA, if you're a lottery pick, you're viewed as somebody who could potentially be a franchise-changing player. You know, look, there are plenty of lottery picks that fade into nothing and really never make any impact. But you have guys who are sort of mid to late lottery picks that have become incredible, um, you know, future Hall of Famers, a guy like Steph Curry. There's less of a damage to a franchise when you draft the 14th pick and it doesn't work out than there is if you have the number one pick. But, you know, I do think that if a lottery pick doesn't fail, it certainly goes down sort of as a sort of a... Uh, a negative mark on a front office's resume. How tricky is it when you talk about busts or potential busts when you include the health factor? Because somebody like Greg Oden, who was drafted first overall ahead of Kevin Durant famously, um, had knee issues and was never able to have a successful NBA career. But in terms of predicting these things, whether it be a Joel Embiid who had issues early on in his career with health or Zion Williamson who had some issues with health early on in his career, you can't really predict these things. So how much is health sort of a factor in bust status or do you cut a player some slack if it's something like, hey, his knee actually gave out on him and he couldn't fulfill his potential? Unfortunately, there is typically no slack given. Hmm. If you don't make it in the NBA because you uh, got a bunch of injuries, it's generally held against you and you're considered a bust. In the case of Greg Oden, you know, obviously his injuries were well-documented. He is considered a bust. I do think that there is some nuance there about whether or not you've had injuries when you're drafted or you're hurt when you're drafted uh, as opposed to you get hurt after you're drafted. Mm. Um, if you're sort of hurt in advance, um, you know, I think there's sort of a more of an understanding and the pressure, I think, shifts to the team. You know, if you've 
broken your foot as a seven-footer and then you're drafted with the third pick, the team knows exactly what they're getting into. If, you know, in the case of Joel Embiid, he was unable to finish his only season at Kansas because of injury. Mm. Hitting it big in the draft, hitting on a player in the draft, which typically happens when you draft huge upside or hugely talented players, is way more rewarding than hitting a solid single, you know, <laughs> hitting a double to the gap. And that's the thing. Like, you are generally rewarded in the NBA by taking these physically gifted, highly talented, huge upside players as opposed to finished products. The guys and people who have hit grand slams, who have gotten Joel Embiid's, have gotten Giannis Antetokounmpo's, um, those teams that have taken those risks have been rewarded more often than people who took Steph Curry. And what does it tell you that Steph Curry went seventh in the draft, that six teams passed on the greatest college shooter we've ever seen, who, hmm. surprise, surprise, became the greatest NBA shooter we've ever seen because he was deemed as not having huge upside and his um, physical capabilities not being enough in the NBA. Because the front offices are so highly incentivized to draft in that way, it increases the chances of busts. Brian, there's a song I really like. It's called EuroLeague by an artist named Paul Williams. It's about Anthony Bennett, the 2013 number one overall draft pick, and essentially sort of making fun of the fact that he ended up being a bust. And I think you kind of touched on this in terms of players and their potential. But when it comes to somebody like that, how can a franchise get that so wrong? Well, this is obviously one of the classic cases and one of the biggest busts because um, Anthony Bennett almost immediately, um, it was clear that he was not going to fit in the NBA. Um, and that's one of the things that's also, as an aside, that is amazing is that with everything that goes into the draft and the scouting process, that teams can get surprised when the players show up for summer league. They can get surprised and it's like, wow. And like, I remember, you know, the same front office that drafted Kyrie Irving drafted Anthony Bennett. And, hmm. um, you know, Kyrie Irving was a favorite to be taken number one, but he had an injury history. He only played seven games at Duke. And his foot injury was something that doctors were a little worried about. Right. He went number one, and immediately there was a lockout. He didn't get to play in summer league or whatever. And so when he finally showed up and started playing, the Cavs were like, oh, my God, this guy is way better than we thought. And they had drafted him number one. <laughs> they had done all the work. They had gone through all the physical. They had talked to his grade school teachers. You know, they had done everything and broke down every frame of film that possible, drafted him, and they blew him away. And then they took Anthony Bennett, you know, like three or four years later. <laughs> and they went through the whole process. And when Anthony Bennett arrived, they were like, wow, he's really not as good as we thought. Are all those guys now morons? You know, I think this is, again, the nature. But I also say this. There is huge nuance that is often lost because just the nature of fandom. Some drafts don't have easily identifiable star players. Right. You don't have to be a, you know, savvy 40-year NBA grizzled veteran of 7,000 workouts to know that Victor Wembanyama had incredible upside and in, in taking him number one. Yeah. Even if Wembanyama ends up not being as good as we thought, like nobody would have not taken him number one. But there are plenty of years where the top end of the draft is not clear. And maybe, you know, 
you're looking at players and you're like, boy, uh, the best case scenario for this guy is that he is the third best player on a team. And that doesn't mean that they're right because they're always wrong, but some drafts um, play out that way. Yeah, there was no Michael Jordan at number three in that draft. That was a draft of Victor Oladipo, Otto Porter Jr., Cody Zeller, and so on. Now, I did want to get back to Scoot and drill down a little bit specifically on what fans are concerned about. But I did want to ask you, yes, we talk about upside. We talk about drafting that way. But what are some of the warning signs that maybe teams can look for in terms of what's correctable and what's not? So I think one of the huge things, obviously, beyond injuries is where the player, um, you know, plays. Like if you lead the ACC in scoring, for example, you probably are going to have some scoring talent. Right. Um, If you are the MVP of a league in Europe where there's a bunch of 27 to 32-year-old fully developed men like Victor Wembanyama was, you can sort of extrapolate that, you know, you may have a guy who can compete here. If you are the Euro League Final Four MVP at age 18 years old, like Luka Doncic was, you might have winning capabilities and leadership capabilities within you. Of course, there are many, many different shades of gray there and many, many different um, viewpoints. But part of the reason why the NBA and David Stern, which was a huge factor for him. He no longer wanted high school players to be drafted is because it was so difficult to evaluate them. Hmm. Yes, you could see that they, that a certain guy was six foot nine could jump out of the gym, but she would try to go watch him play against other high school talent. And it was very hard to evaluate it. And so, you know, they would also try to look at them in these summer tournaments where they would play higher in talent and Israel, you know this, like mm. they turn that that's a that's a wasteland. Yeah. It's very hard to evaluate players playing in AAU events on like all-star teams that were thrown together, mm-hmm. you know, two days prior. So the amount of busts that bubbled up from high school players getting drafted and the in the evaluation uh problems there is a reminder that the environment that a player plays in is huge in in, in evaluating him. Now, one of the most important things that an agent can do for an 18-year-old who hires him uh, or her is to choose the avenue that will best highlight their talents ahead of the NBA draft. Will you go to Australia to play there? Right. Um, Like LaMelo Ball did and certainly elevated his draft status. Do you go to Europe or stay in Europe in the case of Luka Doncic and Victor Wembanyama? Very clearly... Uh, worked for them. Do you go to the G League Ignite, which is sort of the NBA's development system uh, in Las Vegas, which has produced a number of top 10 picks? Do you go to Overtime Elite, which is a sort of rival to the G League Ignite, which is an independent operation based in Atlanta that produced the Thompson Twins this last year? Mm -hmm. Um, Do you go to college um, and if you do go to college, do you go someplace where you will come in and be the best player on an on a middling team? Or do you go someplace where there's three other top picks where you may not 
get highlighted as much, but uh, will be, you know, maybe developed a little bit more. Which of these choices has the most money? All of these places now pay six to seven figures. Um, how badly does the family need the money? How important is the money to the player? Selecting all of those is a precursor to setting you up to look good so that when the teams evaluate you, they will give you the highest mark. And that's why the environment that you're in, the, the, the pond or the lake where you're swimming in that huge evaluation year leading up to the draft is so very important. After the break, we turn back to Scoot Henderson and why it'll take more than just eight games to judge his NBA fate. Passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. From superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has got you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Delicious, meat nutritious. In the snack that packs a real protein punch. Wonderful pistachios, one of the highest protein nuts out there. Each one-ounce serving has 6 grams of protein, giving you over 10% of your daily value. Wonderful pistachios also come in a variety of flavors and sizes, perfect for enjoying with family and friends, or taking them with you on the go. And you're on the go a lot. Taking the kids to school, hopping from meeting to meeting, shopping for groceries. Well, the good news is, not only are wonderful pistachios a complete protein, providing all nine essential amino acids, they're also great for all your adventures. So whether you're a pistachio purist who loves cracking open every nut, or you prefer the convenience of no-shells pistachios, Wonderful Pistachios has got you covered. Grab Wonderful Pistachios and elevate your snacking game today. Visit wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. You mentioned the NBA's G League Ignite, which is bringing us back to Scoot Henderson because that's where he spent his pre-NBA season. And you would think, in terms of NBA readiness, a place like the G League Ignite would prepare Scoot as well as possible as any other league could or any other program could. So I wanted to get your thoughts on Scoot early on, where he is as a lead guard, and then when you factor in some of those pressure factors that you mentioned early on in discussing his being drafted number three by Portland, how that plays into his early performance. Well, I want to say that no matter what anybody tries to say now or going forward, probably in about, I don't know, 75 or so percent of the drafts in NBA history, Scoot Henderson would have been taken number one. Right. Scouts and NBA executives and coaches love him. They loved his strength. They loved his speed. They loved his makeup. They loved everything about him. 
And so no matter what happens going forward, I don't want to hear anything like, oh, I told you about Scoot. <laughs> he was highly, highly desired. Mm -hmm. There were many teams beating down the door of the Charlotte Hornets and Portland Trailblazers wanting that second or third pick to get Scoot Henderson. So that's, I think that's number one. Number two, I want to point out that he's not been able to play that much basketball. Right. He suffered an injury early last season with the Ignite that knocked him out of a huge portion of their season. And then he stopped playing early because he had secured his draft position. Um, he prepared for the draft, got drafted by the Blazers, came into um, Summer League and got hurt. You know, hurt his shoulder. Uh, it was either the first or second day of Summer League and missed the rest of Summer League. So he didn't get the summer. Then he comes into his first training camp, which is a very immersive, you know, challenging, difficult experience for any NBA rookie, whether you're the first pick or the 60th pick, and he gets hurt again and misses a huge chunk of the season. So he hasn't been able to play much. He probably hasn't played a heavy load of basketball since he was a senior in high school. That's a big thing. Any conversation about Scoot Henderson, he just hasn't played that much. Right. My thoughts on Scoot going into the draft where his highlights were very tempting and his athleticism is something you'd want on any team. But a lot of the highlights were similar. It was a lot of straight line drives to the basket and, you know, pull up three pointers. And it seemed like his body type and his potential is, as you mentioned before, it's what draws a lot of people to, the, to, to draft these players at the top of the draft. But that's what really elevated him, hoping they can get their hands on something of a Derrick Rose type. Right. And um, I honestly don't believe that anybody would have looked at the situation that Scoot Henderson was in, particularly after he suffered the rough ankle injury in the, in the uh, preseason and said, he's going to win rookie of the year. And nobody who would say that who would have a straight face and believe it because the situation was, was so challenging for him. Not to mention um, probably the hardest position to play as a rookie in the NBA is point guard. Right. In terms of your responsibility in the game, you know, if you have a rookie point guard in the NBA, you're almost guaranteed to lose. Right. You know, the fastest way to guarantee losing is to have young guards in the NBA. Um, you know, even Luka Doncic, who was probably, if not the most prepared, one of the most prepared um, teenagers ever to come into the NBA, uh, considering the level that he played at and his size and his, um, you know, the, the amount of reps that he had in professional basketball by then. Even Luka was not able to truly influence the Mavericks into being a winning team until his third season. Mm -hmm. And that's, again, the highest standard. So, you know, you have to have a realistic viewpoint of it. Uh, that's just even if he was healthy. And then when you factor in the injuries, um, it's going to be that case. The other thing is, when you look at the history of guards as rookies, I don't care if they're 22, I don't care if they're 19. Guards as rookies in the NBA typically struggle shooting the ball. Mm -hmm. I could list off 500 guards whose worst shooting seasons in their careers were as rookies because the speed of the game, the demands of the position, the longer three-point line, everything that's coming at you leads you to be able to execute less. It just happens. It is a fact of life. Um, it is like getting pimples as a teenager. <laughs> you just get them. It just happens. And so that's definitely with something that's going on with Scoot and a bunch of other rookie guards right now as well. 
I'll give you another player, and you mentioned him earlier, Kyrie Irving. His third year, he shot 43% and, you know, looked like he was heading in the wrong direction, but clearly overcame any potential bust labels. So I'll end on this one, Brian. How does one, not that Scoot has picked up the label yet, but how does one shake and overcome the bust status if it's been planted on them? One of the things that happens for just about any player that comes into the NBA is that there's a expectation and there's a reality. Um, some players come in knowing that they're going to be a certain type of player. Um, maybe it's to be a role player. Maybe it's to be a bench player. Maybe it's to be the third scorer on a team. But they all come in, or at least most of them come in, especially high draft picks, thinking that they're going to be stars. And so... There's this transition that can happen where you go from having expectations to having, um, you know, the ability to be a highly functioning NBA player. Right. Um, there's there's a concept in the NBA called uh, the secondary draft, hmm. which is that, um, and this happens to players up and down the first round and even some second round players, where players come in, they have certain expectations and they're put in certain roles in their team. They may not succeed at those roles. And like after a year two or year three, they become available by trade or maybe even they're let go by their teams. And then a team can come in and get that player. And it's sort of and it's sort of like redrafting them. And they come into a new team with a different set of expectations. And I would say a classic case, this is a guy like Chris Middleton, okay. who came into the Detroit Pistons, was sort of an also-ran player and nobody really thought about him gets traded to the Milwaukee Bucks, they put him in a different spot, he becomes an all-star. Um, there's many more um, examples of this too. But the concept of the secondary draft exists. The other thing is, like, I'm going to take a player like Danny Ferry. The reason I say Danny Ferry is because um, when I was a, a kid... I was a Cavs fan, and he was the number two overall pick, and the Cavs traded Ron Harper for him, and he was branded the next Larry Bird, National Player of the Year from Duke, you know, 6'10 shooter, very, very high expectations when he came into the league. He ended up playing like 13 or 14 years in the league, but he signed a 10-year, $30 million contract hmm. with the Cavs because at the time there was no maximum lengths of contracts. And so not only did they trade Ron Harper, who was an all-star player for him, but they signed him to a 10-year contract. And then Danny Ferry became a role player. And he played all 10 years with the Cavs, and he later went on to the San Antonio Spurs. And by the end of his career, Danny Ferry was a very productive member of championship teams. He was like one of the key role players in the corner hitting threes, doing the dirty work, uh, getting rebounds, you know, uh, you know, being the glue guy, being a locker room leader, being a veteran leader. And I later got to know Danny because he was the general manager of the Cavaliers and Atlanta Hawks. And, you know, at the end of his career, he made the same amount of money as he made when he was a rookie. Hmm. Made $3 million a year. But when he was in San Antonio at the end of his career, he was an indispensable role player. At the beginning of his career, where he had been traded for Ron Harper and signed a 10-year contract, he was viewed as a bust. <laughs> This is a guy with a, like a many-year career, championship rings, and was so highly regarded by his teammates in San Antonio that five seconds after he retired, they immediately hired him. <laughs> is that a bust? 
it depends on who you ask, is really the answer. There's a hundred different ways to win, and some of these teams that have drafted top picks haven't actually, it hasn't worked out, and a player, you know, becoming a bust um, can, you know, dramatically hurt them, but it is no, by no means a death knell. Mm-hmm. It is by no means the, uh, the be-all, end-all. It's important, but it's not everything. Yeah, and if Victor Wembanyama goes on to change the game, only a little bit extra pressure on Scoot Henderson, who was drafted two spots after him. Brian, thanks so much. Thank you, Izzy. I'm Israel Gutierrez. This has been ESPN Daily. We'll talk to you tomorrow.